Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> I think most of you uh, know this, but just in case you don't, our um, annual women's retreat um, is happening this weekend, and I say is happening because it's going to continue um, after this service is over here in the sanctuary, um, where uh, Christy Herrick, uh, Christy, where, where are you now? I know you're in here. There, where is she? Okay, so Christy, it's good to have you. Christy is the Women's Ministry Director at Briarwood uh, Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, where Harry Reeder is the senior pastor. And so, Christy, it really is great to have you here with us. And uh, she's been teaching our women Friday night and Saturday, and she's going to finish up teaching uh, during the Sunday school hour here in the sanctuary. And so ladies, even if you weren't able to be a part of the retreat at Camp Allen in the last couple of days, we brought the end of the retreat to you. So you feel free to, to stay here and to, and to enjoy and benefit from her teaching. And so Christy, thank you for, for being here. Um, next week, uh, we're going to return to Ephesians 5. Uh, but for today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 62. So if you'll please open up your Bibles to Psalm 62. Um, you know, I think most of you know that uh, I just got back actually early, uh, technically early yesterday morning. It was very, very early yesterday morning from a trip to Israel. It was a great time. I think I may be the last man standing from the trip. I think everyone else is sick um, except for me. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't poison them or anything like that, but somehow... Somehow, I'm, I'm still on my feet, and so happy, happy to be here. I know you guys were in good hands with Julio and Patrick preaching, and uh, a few weeks ago, whenever um, you know, Patrick chose to preach on Psalm 61, I immediately knew, okay, I'm going to preach on Psalm 62 whenever uh, I come back, because it is one of my favorite psalms. Um, there, there are certain passages of Scripture that the first time you hear them or, or read them, they, they stick with you. And for me, Psalm 62 is one of those texts that, as, as a new Christian, as a freshman in college, um, learning how to, to read the Bible and learning how to pray, and the, 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 the older student who was mentoring me and discipling me kind of put those things together, learning how to pray and learning how to read the Bible by encouraging me to, to read through and pray through, you know, one psalm a day. And so whenever I came to Psalm 62, in particular, the way that psalm ends, you know, it really gripped me. So this, we'll get to this in a fuller sense, but Psalm 62 ends with verse 11 and 12, and we read, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You know, and I, I think that's beautiful. And I love it, I think it's a very helpful way to understand who our God is. But Psalm 62, it, it's, uh, it's a fairly unique psalm. It does not contain a single petition or a single request. You know, most psalms have at least one request, one petition, but, but not, not Psalm 62. And yet, it, it's a psalm of, of confidence and, and trust in the Lord. It's a psalm of confidence and trust, not because David's faith is so strong, not because David's faith is, is, is so great, but because God is so powerful and so loving towards his people. You see, in Christianity, it's never about the strength of our faith. It's never about the, whether or not we have enough faith. It's always about the object of our faith. 
You know, do we have faith in the right object? You know, as Sinclair Ferguson said, as I often remind you, even the weakest Christians still get the same strong Christ. So Psalm 62 is a psalm about trusting and resting in God, in God alone. And that matters because the alternative to trusting and resting in God alone is, is worry. And worry and anxiety never ultimately makes things better. Now, responsible concern, it's not worry. You know, responsible concern is, well, responsible and, and mature and, and appropriate for the situation. Right? There are many things that we ought to be concerned about. You know, on this trip, there was about a 12-hour uh, period of time where Alicia and I were both in the middle of the Jordanian desert, and we were going to be without any self-service whatsoever. And we didn't realize that ahead of time, and so we were concerned about um, you know, what might happen back in Houston with our kids um, while we were away and, and unavailable. Right? We should all be concerned and informed about many things, but, but God's Word calls Christians in many places throughout the Bible to, to not worry and, and to not fear. Philip Ryken puts it this way, far from adding anything, anxiety always subtracts. That worry is a thief. It steals our time. Our thoughts turn to our troubles, and then we waste time worrying about them. Worry steals our rest. We lie awake at night, anxious about tomorrow, and then we get up too tired to work hard, and this only adds to our anxiety. Worry steals our health as we suffer the physical effects of our anxiety. Worry only makes things worse as it leads to irritability, addiction, laziness, or on the other hand, overwork. Worry steals our hope as we fear the worst about, all, about the future. All kinds of difficulties arise in our minds, most of which will never come to pass. Soren Kierkegaard said it like this, Worriers feel every blow that never falls. And they cry over things they will never lose. And yet, I think if we're honest, and let's be honest, in a room this size, for many of us, it's, it's fairly common natural for us to live with anxiety and worry and discontentment and frustration. Well, Psalm 62 tells us what to do and where to go, to whom to go with our anxiety, our worry, our discontentment, and our frustration. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jedithon, a psalm of David, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. 
Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at Psalm 62 under three headings. And they're they're questions. We're going to ask and answer, what does it mean to trust God alone? And then, why is trusting God alone so hard? And then third, how do we know that we can trust God alone? And so first, what does it mean to trust God alone? Well, let's first look at the, the title given to us, To the Choir Master, According to Jedithon, a psalm of David. And so we see that, 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 that David, King David is the author, but we also see that this is to the choir master according to Jedithon. And, and, and we know from 1 Chronicles 16 and other places that Jedithon was one of the, the main Levites who, who, who led worship in the tabernacle. We know that he wrote music for worship and he directed the choir in tabernacle worship. So, therefore, what this title may be telling us about Psalm 62 is that perhaps this guy Jedithon wrote the tune from Psalm 62, or perhaps the tune was named after him, but that's, that's there in the title. But notice, King David is the author, and we're, we're going to do some sanctified speculation a little bit later about what could possibly be the, the context of Psalm 62, but we're really not totally sure about that. What we see in verse 1, David writes, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now remember, there there are no petitions, there are no requests in in this psalm. And here at the beginning, David is making a declaration. (coughs) He's stating, he's declaring that his soul waits in silence for God. That this this waiting in silence is, is trusting God, resting in God. And notice that phrase, in silence. The David says there's no murmuring, there's no grumbling, there's no complaining about God. There's no murmuring, groaning, complaining to God or about him to other people. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. It's as if, as one commentator put it, it's as if the words have all been said, or perhaps no words will come. And the issue rests with God alone. And so David is declaring that his soul is at peace, a place of contentment. It's the opposite of feeling anxious or fearful or worrisome, that his soul is at rest, that internally in his heart and soul he's feeling safe and secure and confident. Now why? Well, look at verse 2. He, God alone, is my rock and my salvation my fortress. I shall not greatly be shaken. I shall not be greatly shaken. See, David says that his soul finds rest in God, again, not because David has such great faith, but because God is such a great God. That he has rest in God alone because because of who God is, because of his nature, his character, his attributes, because of who God is and who David knows that he can always trust God to be. That God's a rock, God is a fortress. Think about those metaphors. I mean, David's point is that God is always solid and stable and consistent. 
unchangeable, dependable, secure, safe, reliable, even whenever everything else in life seems to be just the opposite. That God is David's rock and fortress. So let's pause here and let me ask you a, a question. Is this who you know your God to be? I mean, be honest in, in the quietness of your own heart and mind. You know, who, who is your God? What, what is your God like? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number four, a question I often remind you of, ask, what is God? Here's the answer. God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable. A rock, a fortress. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable. And then we are meant to apply those three words, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, to everything that comes next. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being and in his wisdom and his power and his holiness and his justice. Hear this, dear Christian. Your God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness and in his truth. See, this is David's God, and dear Christian, this is your God. This is our God, whom we can trust to be our rock and our fortress, our salvation, today, tomorrow, and forevermore, right? Regardless of what comes our way. You see, and this is, this is important. You see, Psalm 62 is, is not a psalm about finding rest in the absence of difficult circumstances. Okay, anyone can do that. Anyone. You don't need God to, to, to be at peace if everything is going exactly according to your plan and exactly the way you want it to go. See, but Psalm 62 is written by a man who's learned how to trust God in the face of diversity, uncertainty, pain, and danger. You see, listen, we've heard David's declaration that he is re- his soul is resting, trusting, in silence, in God alone. But listen to his situation in verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Do you hear David's situation? I mean, he's, he's declared internally in his soul that he's at peace and rest and trusting in God. But he's just told us in verse 3 that he's outwardly being assaulted and attacked. That he feels like a weak battered, windblown, leaning, and now tottering fence that's about to fall over. He's telling us that he can no longer tell his friends from his enemies. You look at verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And, And then if you notice in your Bible, you see the word selah just after the period at the end of verse 4. And, and that's a technical term that we find throughout the Psalms, and we can't be exactly certain of, of what it meant for David, but many scholars think that it, it signaled a, a time for an intentional pause or an interlude. So let David's situation sink in for a moment. He's being assaulted. He's being attacked. He's being lied to. He's being betrayed on all sides. You know, he's surrounded by liars and schemers and betrayers he's surrounded by people who who want to take who want to take him down who want him dead who want his throne 
And we don't know the specific circumstances behind this psalm, but, but many think perhaps this was during the time of David's son Absalom's rebellion against his father. But it's a time whenever David doesn't know where to turn and, and who to trust. As Paul Tripp puts it, the world of the Bible is like your world, messy and broken, and the people of the Bible are like you, weak and failing. The situations of the Bible are like yours, complicated and unexpected. The Bible just isn't a cosmetic religious book. It will shock you with its honesty about what happens in the broken world in which we live. What we see here, that in Psalm 62, while on the one hand, David declares his confidence and his trust and his rest in God alone, he's also admitting that, that he, he lives in, acknowledging he lives in the same messy, broken, complicated, unexpected world in which we live. A world where things are hard, where there's illness and chronic pain and difficult marriages and deeply wounded friendships and career complexities and uncertainties, unanswered prayers, and the list goes on and on. And yet what we read, David confessed and declared in verses 1 and 2, for God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Or as one commentator put it, there is scarcely another psalm that reveals such an absolute and undisturbed peace in which confidence in God is so completely unshaken, in which the assurance is so strong. You know, there's, there's no petitions, no requests in this psalm. David's waiting, resting, trusting in God. So that's what we ought to do. So let's close our Bibles and go home. Right? So and you, and you, we're laughing because we know, you know, this is so easier said than done. And so, so why, why do we find this so hard to do? Well, well, that's the second heading. Why is trusting God alone so hard? So hard for me, so hard for you. I mean, we can sum up what David's going to say next by simply saying, you know, that, that you, ought to, you ought to wait on the Lord, you ought to trust the Lord, and you ought to pray. But, but I know that you know that, that if, I, if I were to just say that, okay, this is what you need to do, that's going to simply sound like a, you know, a hollow platitude to us. You know, why do we find it so hard to live out this resting in God that David so attractively describes for us? In Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, I'll give you three reasons, or David will give you three reasons. First, part of why it's hard is because trusting God is not a one-time thing, right? Trusting in God is not like learning how to ride a bike, learning how to swim. You know, once you've done that, you check it off and you move on and, okay, good, I've learned how to trust God, never have to worry about that ever again. I'll never forget how to do it ever again. So here's what, so look, look at verse 1 and verse 5. Look at those two verses together. They're very, very similar, almost identical. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So David's making a declaration. Then we see verse 5, almost the same words. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. There's a small difference in the actual words in verse 5, and that small difference makes a big point. 
So do you see the difference? In verse 1, David is declaring, for alone my soul waits in silence. Put another way, David's declaring that he's waiting, he's resting, he's trusting in God. However, verse 5 is a little bit different. He's not making a declaration about his soul. Rather, he is speaking, commanding, preaching to his own soul in verse 5. See, David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a big book about spiritual depression uh, based largely on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. But one of the key points from that book can be summarized by saying, sometimes our biggest need is, you know, is to do what David's doing in Psalm 62, verse 5, and it's to take ourselves by the hand and to preach the truth of God's word to ourselves. That's what he's doing. You look at verse 5, David says to himself, he's saying to his own soul, for God alone, O my soul, he's commanding his soul, he's commanding his heart, wait in silence. Remember who your God is. Remember his promises. Remember his faithfulness. Regardless of what, how your experiences seem, regardless of what your emotions are, remember what you know to be true about your God. He's, David is saying to David, David, be quiet. Trust your God. He is your hope. You see, dear friends, the battle to shape our hearts, the battle to shape our hearts with the truths that our minds already know is never really over. It's an ongoing thing. You see, trusting God is not a one-time thing. We must daily put our trust in God. And this is true for us in, in all the areas of our lives. I mean, it would, it would be so convenient if it was just a one-time thing. You know, that we could say, you know what, I'm so glad, you know, that, that five years ago, I just, you know, I trusted God with my finances. I never have to worry about money ever again. It would be so convenient if I could say, you know, I trusted God with my career or my family, you know, last week, and now I'm just so glad I never have to worry about it ever again. We know the reality is that whenever we finally feel like we've trusted God with a particular area of our life, you know, we know there are going to be other opportunities to trust God with things. And that's how life in this fallen world works. You know, one day it's our education, our dating life, our friendships. The next day it's our career, it's our marriages, it's our children, it's our parents, it's our careers, it's our health. The list goes on and on. So why is trusting God so hard? It's, it's because it's not a one-time thing. We have to constantly shepherd our own hearts towards putting our trust in God. And that's what David's doing in verses 5, 6, and 7. So look with me at those. For God alone, O oh my soul, he's preaching, commanding his own soul, his own heart. Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And that's one of the reasons why, friends, that we, we need to keep returning Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to the ordinary means of grace. Continually putting ourselves under the faithful preaching of God's Word. Experiencing faithful biblical worship. The right administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ministry of prayer. You see, we all need to cultivate a prayer life. Right? There's not one of us in this room who's too young to begin doing that, and there's not one of us in this room who's, who's too old that, that now, you know, I no longer need to worry about that. that we, need to, we never, ever outgrow these ordinary means of grace. 
So why is trusting God so hard? Well, first, it's not a one-time thing. The second reason why trusting God is so hard is because it's not a sometimes thing. Look again, look at verse 8. David says, trust in him at all times. Not sometimes, but not most of the time, but at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Then there's another Selah after verse 8. So let that sink in. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your hearts before him. Pastor Richard Phillips says, David's strategy is not one that gains inward peace in only some trials. To the contrary, by trusting in God alone and bringing our souls into submission to the saving truths of the Bible, we always gain hope and assurance from God. What David experiences here, he can receive always. What God has done for him, God will do again for all those who put their trust only in him. Christians never graduate from the school of God's word and never advance beyond the need to quiet our souls before the Lord. You know, notice that phrase in verse 8, pour out your heart before him. I mean, I think that's such a wonderful and helpful um, description of prayer. You know, I mean, imagine, you know, picking up a five-gallon bucket just full of water and you turn it upside down and the water just goes everywhere. It's just it's poured all the way out. Well, Psalm, verse 8, is telling us to take our concerns, our fears, our frustration, our hopes, our dreams, and in prayer to pour it all out before our Heavenly Father. So let me ask you, I mean, how, how often do you do that? When's the last time you did that? I mean, dear Christian, you know, don't delay, do it. Do it today. Be open and honest with your Heavenly Father as you pray to Him. You know, He, he, he can handle it. You're not too young to begin doing that. You're not so old that you're at a point where you need to stop doing it. So so why is trusting God so hard? First, it's not a one-time thing. Second, it's not a sometimes thing. But then thirdly, the reason why trusting God is so hard is because trusting God alone really means trusting God only. Now, let me explain. Notice how the words alone and only dominate Psalm 62. We see them over and over and over again. For example, in verse 1, for God alone my soul waits. Verse 2, he alone is my rock. Verse 5, for God alone. Verse 6, he only is my rock. Listen to how James Montgomery Boyce explains this. The most important thing about Psalm 62 is that the psalmist is making God his only object of trust. He's not trusting something other than God, nor is he trusting God and something else, or God and someone else. His trust is in God only, and that's why he's so confident. Our problem is not that we do not trust God, at least in some sense. We have to do that to be Christians. To become a Christian, you have to trust God in the matter of salvation, at least. It is rather that we do not trust God only, meaning that we always want to add in something else to trust as well. Right, so we put another way, <clears throat> the only way to find rest in God, the, the kind of rest that David is talking about in Psalm 62, is to hold on to God alone with both hands. Now, I, I've used this, I've told this story to, to you before, but it's been a long time, and I know that it's actually been several years, and, and many of you weren't here, so I'm going to tell this, and I think it's the best illustration I have to, to, to illustrate this. 
But it happened 13 years ago when my son, who's now 12, was, was two. And Alicia had the two older girls, and she had our son, Brantley. He goes by Richard now, but back then he was Brantley. Okay, so Brantley, and uh, she, ha- she has him, and, and they're all walking, and so she, she, she's coming in from the grocery store. She's got her arms loaded with, uh, with groceries, and, and they get out of the car, and they walk up to the garage, and Alicia goes over to the little keypad, and she punches in our code, and the garage door begins to, to raise. And, uh, and then Alicia's looking around, I guess, for her keys or whatever else, and all of a sudden she hears one of the sisters say in a very concerned voice, Brantley? And Alicia turns around, and his feet are up here. Because he, he saw the garage door begin to go up, and he grabbed hold of that handle with both hands, and he just rode that thing all the way up. <laughs> okay, he rode that thing all the way up. You know, he's two, and he, you know, he, he's hanging on, and, and Alicia's got, got this, her, her arms are loaded, and she's trying to put stuff down, and, and she can hear him. You know, he can barely talk at this point, but she can hear, make out a few words. And what he's saying is, hold on tight, don't fall. Hold on tight, don't fall. Now, and, and the truth is, is that he was right. That he was a lot safer and more secure by hanging on with both hands to that handle. And if he would have let go with this hand to reach for his sisters, or if he'd have let go with this hand to reach for his mom, you know, he's probably, he's probably not doing a Sylvester Stallone you know, cliffhanger. He's probably going to fall. If he lets go with one hand to reach for something else, He's not going to find himself being in a more solid situation. He's going to find himself falling. You see, unlike little two-year-old Brantley, many of us, we don't understand that. And instead of holding on to God along with both hands, with all that we have, that we instinctively try to hedge our bets by trusting in other things in addition to trusting God to reach for something else. We want to hold on to God. We know we have to, but we want to trust in something else. And so what, what is that something else for you? What, what is competing with God for your trust or rivaling God for your trust? You know, is it your health? Is it your wealth? Is it your own wisdom? See, when we're in trouble and our, our hearts and our souls whisper to us, okay, we have to have this or we're not going to make it. Whenever our hearts and souls whisper to us, well, this has to happen, or everything's lost. You see, the assumption behind that little whisper is that God alone will never be enough. That some other circumstance, or some other condition, or some other possession, or some other position is necessary to finally make me happy and secure. You see, whenever we think we need God plus anything else, to be okay, to be happy and secure, this only leads to more worry. See, God alone is our rock. He alone is our refuge, our fortress. He alone is our salvation. Anything else we try to cling to is guaranteed to be less trustworthy than God. So we'll never know the rest that God alone can provide until we're willing to trust him alone. And we see in Psalm 62 that David's learned this lesson well. And so then he gives us, in verses 9 and 10, a couple of examples of things he is not trusting in. So look at verse 9. First, he says he's not trusting in other people. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. 
See, what David's saying here in, in poetic language, this is a psalm, that all people, whether of, of low estate or high estate, you know, whether of great wealth or no wealth, great power and influence or no influence whatsoever, what David's saying is that, you know, that they're all essentially the same whenever you compare them to God, that they're nothing. Together, they're lighter than a breath. And he uses the imagery of a scale to make the point. He says, the balances go up and they are together lighter than a breath. He says, you take everybody, whether lowest state, highest state, you put them on this side of the scale and you put God on this side of the scale. And here's how the scale always goes like this. Because God is consequential. He's weighty. He matters. His opinion of me is what matters. His words are what matter. His promises to me are what matter. What he is able to do for me and in me and to me and through me is what matters. It's not them. Right? He's the one who's infinite, eternal, unchangeable. You know, and listen, here's the way it works. You know, if, you, if, you, if you have a high view of God, then it's going to enable you to have a lower view of, and really not even care about what other people are saying or what they're thinking or what their opinions are. But if, if you're going to have a high view of what other people think and say and whether they approve of what you're doing, then it's going to inevitably mean that you're going to have to have a much lower view of what God says, what his word says, and the promises that he's made to you. See, David's at war, and whenever... A king is at war, armies matter, and so David should have an army. He should have the very best army he can have. But what he's saying here in Psalm 62 is that he knows that he should not trust in his army instead of trusting in God. You know, should we have concern about life? Yes, but, but worry is unhelpful and dishonoring to God who says, trust me. You know, should we, should we plan and prepare and be responsible? Yes, of course we should. You know, should we have and depend on friends and a Christian community? Yes, but we should not trust in other people instead of trusting in God alone. You know, friends, so we ought to ask ourselves, okay, who do we run to first when life gets hard and things are uncertain? Do we run first to other people and look for them to comfort us and to assure us things are going to be okay? Or do we first run to our Heavenly Father? You know, do we spend more time seeking comfort from other people, or do we spend more time seeking comfort from our Heavenly Father and His Word? You know, other people are great, and we need them, and there are so many one another commands that we find in the Scriptures to encourage one another and serve one another and, and pray for one another, but other people can never, ever give us the rest and the peace and the confidence and the assurance that God alone can give. Then David tells us in verse 9, you're right, not to trust in other people, but then he tells us in verse 10 to not to trust in all of our resources. Look at verse 10. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your hearts on them. You know, our material resources, our wealth, whether stolen or gained deceitfully or whether earned honestly, cannot give our souls the rest and peace that God alone can. So David says, set not your heart on them. He says, you, you, you'll never ever have enough that it will be worthy of our trust. And what we do have can be taken from us. 
right? Wealth is a short-lived security at best, and it can disappear as quickly as it appeared. David says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. But then finally, the final heading is, well, how do we know we can trust God? I see what it looks like. It's resting, trusting in God. I I understand, Richard, why it's hard, because it is hard. But thirdly, how do we know we can do it? We finally come to those verses that I began with, verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. It's a very significant statement about our God, that he is powerful and loving. And that Hebrew word translated steadfast love is the word hesed referring to God's faithful covenantal love. You know, simply put, this this hesed, this steadfast love, makes big promises and keeps those big promises. See, God is absolutely certain to fulfill his promises of mercy and grace and forgiveness to all who are his children through faith in Christ. And the true God of the Bible is always both strong, powerful, and loving. And he's never one without the other. And one is not more important than the other. You know, so I'm going to ask you a, you know, a silly question. Um, I've spent a lot of time the last 48 hours on airplanes, and I know we have some pilots in this room right now, but, you know, I didn't reach out to them to verify the, uh, the answer to this question because I think I know it. But which, which wing on an airplane is most important? You know, my, my guess is the answer is both. Is that right? What do you think? Okay. I heard it from one of the experts. Yes. God is both powerful and loving, and we need him to be both. Think about what that would mean if God wasn't both. Right? A powerful God who isn't loving may be strong enough to save us or protect us and provide for us. Right? But the question is, will he? Right? If God is not loving, then you can never know that you've ever done enough to to secure his favor. You can never really ultimately truly have confidence in his promises. You can never rest securely in him. But yet a loving God who isn't powerful may, may want to save, protect, and provide for you. But how can he do that without his power? He's ultimately impotent to be able to help you, provide for you. But praise God, our God is power. Power belongs to him, and including in that word powerful is is his sovereignty, that he's in control of all things, that life comes at us fast, and it catches us off guard. It surprises us, but he's never, ever surprised. Our God is never caught off guard, never surprised. I mean, praise God that power and steadfast love both belong to him. Or as J.J. Stewart Perone puts it, This is the only truly worthy representation of God. Power without love is brutality, and love without power is weakness. Power is the strong foundation of love, and love is the beauty and crown of power. So thankfully, the true God of the Bible is powerful, loving, willing, able to lead, guide, and provide for his people in every way. Well, how do we know this to be true? How do we we know this to be true because of Christ? and his life, and his death, and his resurrection. That God promised us from the earliest pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would send a Savior. And, and he proved the full extent of his power by sovereignly orchestrating all of the events of history to carry out this plan of redemption. 
right, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That only a powerful God can promise a Savior and then deliver the promised Savior. And God proved the full extent of his steadfast covenantal love by sending us his only son, who lived that perfect, sinless, righteous life that we've all failed to live, and who died that substitutionary atoning death in our place, on our behalf, on the cross, to cancel our sin debt in full. That only a loving God would make that level of sacrifice for sinners like us. And this is the true God of the Bible, powerful and loving. And he says, trust me, rest in me. And friends, whenever we doubt that, we need to remember what he has promised and what he has delivered and done for us. As Paul summarizes in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, friends, this is the God we have, and this is the God we can trust, the God we can rest in. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 26, asks, Who is God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And listen to the answer. God is the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. Power belongs to him. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Steadfast love belongs to him. And then David closes Psalm 62 with a final word of confidence and trust regarding his enemies who are assaulting and attacking and betraying him. And so look at the end of verse 12. For you will render to or you will repay a man according to his work. See, on the one hand, this verse is a reminder to trust God, live faithfully, live obediently, not, not sinfully, because God, God doesn't miss anything. God does see us. And he knows what we're doing. He knows how we're living. However, David is also saying that he trusts God to judge him and all of his enemies, and not because David is confident in his own moral performance. Not because David has some delusion of his own righteousness, which he doesn't. And that would be contrary to everything we've looked at so far in Psalm 62 and what the, the rest of the Bible teaches us. That no one is righteous, no, not one. Not one of us should be, ever be confident in our own moral performance. We should never ever think that we measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves, no, not one. That we are all sinners in need of a great Savior. And praise God that we have one, and his name is Jesus. The point is that David is confident in God's power, and he's confident in God's steadfast, faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping love to take care of David, and to deal with his enemies. And for us today, it also means to take care of you and me today, tomorrow, and forevermore. You know, God will bring all of his people all the way home. And so let us take ourselves by the hand 
Let us remind ourselves of the truth of God's word. Keep preaching to our hearts and our souls those truths that we already know in our heads. And urge ourselves to wait, to rest on, to trust in God alone. And may we confess with David, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word teaches us and reproves us and corrects us and trains us with such clarity about who you are and your promises and your commitments to us. May we have a right understanding of who you are. May we trust and rest and lean on your promises. May we cling to them. May we cling to them only. May we cling to them always. Help us to do this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.